Today is Reformation Sunday. Ooh, a bit of an echo there. And without getting too bogged down with history, uh, the Reformation sought to answer uh, the most basic fundamental question in Christianity. How does someone become saved? At the time of the Reformation, the church had been teaching, was teaching, salvation is achieved through faith and works in tandem. Equal in importance, equal in significance, equal in results. But the great theologians of the Reformation said, hold on, wait a second, that's not actually what Scripture says. In fact, believing it is within our power to atone or make right our offenses against God Almighty diminishes his majesty, diminishes his perfect justice, and it diminishes the purpose of the cross. We must forever and always approach the throne offering nothing of what we've done, but rather the work that Christ has done in us. Otherwise, we are elevating our works beyond the cross, and we cannot do that. Scripture does not say that's even possible, and it diminishes the gospel. Now, there's more to the history that we don't have time to examine this morning, but it's, it's significant that, again, today is the day Protestants celebrate the Reformation, um, and it happens to land in the middle of James chapter 2, which is kind of cool. No, we did not plan it this way. In fact, our text for this morning has changed about four times in the last week. So if you walk away here confused, that might be an indication as to why. So this morning, again, we are going to continue our series in James. James chapter 2 specifically. Last week, Pastor Nick took us through the dire implications of what it means to show partiality within the church. How at the root of this is sin against the very reason Christ came to die for us, for us filthy people. If the Lord of glory showed no partiality, if he set aside the majesty, the splendor, the awesomeness of heaven and took on flesh and came here to be with us in our muck and our disgustingness, and he spent time with with tax, collector, tax collectors and prostitutes and the people, the religious elite of the day would have nothing to do. If the sovereign God of glory did that for us, how then should we respond? The first part of James 2 really just hammers away at this idea. Like a preacher from a pulpit slapping it hard saying, show no partiality, it is wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong. Showing us how the royal law reveals the character of our citizenship. Then in verse 14, James seems to kind of take a step back a little bit. He gets off the podium. He puts on his pastoral shepherding hat. And suddenly it feels more like a conversation at a coffee shop, one-on-one. -on -one. And he starts asking some very specific questions. Why? Because as we've stated several times in the series, James isn't a manual for how to become saved, but rather it was written to Christians so that we would examine ourselves regularly according to this royal law, this law of liberty that we now belong to if we are in Christ. 
James is saying, don't be deceived. Common theme over and over and over again through this series. Do not be deceived. And those deceptions are really in two parts. The first one is, works can save you. That's a deception. And the other one is just the other side of the coin. You don't need works. Both are deceptions. Both are lies. So in chapter 2, we have and will continue to look at what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Common theme from last week's message. Under the context of the body of Christ. This is where we start. This is where we practice. What does it mean to love the body of Christ? Today, my hope is that you will, you will see that love exercised within the body of Christ flows from a saving faith in the King of glory. Our text today is James chapter 2, verse 14 through 19. And I would invite you to open your Bibles and turn there with me and stand as we read this passage. We stand here at Timberline when we read the word together because we believe this scripture is inspired. It carries with it the weight of of the words of the Holy Spirit and is useful for our training, our conviction, training us into righteousness. So we want to treat it with the respect that it is due. So we are in James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith, Apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the reading of your word. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit empowers it and breathes it to life. And it speaks into our hearts. Father, right now, I pray that you would join us in this room, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to, to chase away all distractions, all the cares of the week, all of the things on our to-do list, Father, that we would be able to sit under the authority of your word and have it speak to us, have it speak to our hearts and minds in such a way that we would leave here transformed. Father, this is some tough stuff we're going to be talking about this morning, so we ask you to guard our hearts and our minds, but also to break them open, that we would receive, that we would be lifted up, that we would be equipped for every good work in the name of Jesus. We thank you for all that you are doing, we praise you, and we ask you to have your will be done for the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. James asks two rhetorical questions in verse 14 about some imaginary person who claims to be a believer. And his point in these questions is that saving faith is revealed in the fruit of our lives. He asks, 
What good is it or, or what value is there if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? What is that faith? It's a faith in word only. It's the faith of those who say but neglect the do, like we talked about in our James intro message in Matthew chapter 7. Two men heard the same message. One builds on sand, one builds on rock. It's a, it's a declared faith absent of real fruit, absent of obedience to the things that the, our king commands of us. And this absence affects more than just the individual being deceived. Those who say and neglect the do are turning the world off from the message of Christianity. One theologian put it well when he wrote, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That is the faith James is referring to in these two rhetorical questions. Saving faith is always revealed in the fruit of our lives. In John's first epistle, in chapter 3, verse 18, he wrote, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You ever wonder what loving and truth means? Let me give you an example. Husbands. Do you love your wives? Yes. Somebody said yes. Well trained. Good. How do you know that they know you love them? If the only answer you have is because I tell her so, you should go ahead and schedule yourselves for some counseling now. The love a husband has for his wife is shared not just in words, but in actions like kindness, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, attention, mercy, intimacy, and sacrifice. This is the kind of love revealed in truth. Truth is not just spoken, it is revealed in action, thereby providing the evidence. There's a, there's a reason why the relationship between God and his people is so often referred to as a marriage in Scripture. Because that marriage covenant produces love, produces an outpouring of love. It's supposed to. If it doesn't, there's something wrong. And we can point to that, and we can attribute, attribute that to a lack of love. The same is true of authentic, saving faith. It will have evidence as it pours out. Why? Because real faith is visible faith. We've hammered this over and over and over again in this series. Real faith is visible faith. And the reason why it's visible is, is it exposes, it proclaims, it shows the kingdom. That's how we know it's real. It illuminates the kingdom of God like a city on a hill. Displaying the kingdom as it comes forth from the body of believers into the world. Titus chapter 2 spells this out beautifully in verse 
11 through 14. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, meaning it's been revealed through Christ, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people, why? For his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Cause and effect. There's a relationship here. Works are a natural outpouring, a natural overflow of this, this glorious transformation when we acknowledge Christ as our Lord. Jesus came to redeem a people for his own possession so they might do what? Imitate him in the world. Jesus did a lot of teaching in Scripture, but he also did a lot of doing. He, he, he ministered to the sick. He joined in dinner with criminals, according to the religious elite. He hung out with prostitutes. He touched the lepers. He did good deeds as a part of his ministry. And we are supposed to imitate this. Ephesians 2.10 2, says, says the same thing as Titus, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, why? To do good works. And Paul calls us to obey in Philippians chapter 2 as we work out our salvation. That doesn't mean we earn it. Imagine that as exercise. We are exercising our faith externally. Work out our faith in fear and trembling as evidence pours, out forth, pours forth from us, not to become saved, but as a natural expression of that faith. Why? Because he continues in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If your saving faith is real, then it's not you working, but rather the Holy Spirit of God exercising his will through you. You are a conduit, which is why we can never approach the throne saying, look at what I did. No, no, you didn't. If this exercising isn't happening, says James, then God isn't working in you, and you need to examine yourself. Now, keep in mind... Very important here. Keep in mind, none of this contradicts the truth. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. None of this negates Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that you can't boast. So that you can't go to the throne saying, look what I did, Jesus. Woohoo! Where's my medal? No. Absolutely not. Or Romans 3, 24, declaring that we are justified 
meaning made right with God by the grace of God alone, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, Nick's favorite word, wrath absorber, by his blood to be received, how? By works? No. By faith. Neither is James contrasting someone who has immature faith with someone who has mature faith. This is one of the, the, the arguments people use frequently. Well, you know, when my faith, when my walk with Jesus reaches this level here, then that evidence of fruit, of, of caring and, and caring for the poor and, and the sick and, and works, that's when that actually starts happening. This level over here. I'm still over here, right? I'm, I'm still kind of new to this faith. So I don't bear the responsibility of any of that fruit. James is saying no. No, actually, that's not the case. Even an immature faith is visible. Often it's more visible because those people are messing it up. They're trying and they're messing it up, but they're still trying. And so that, those mistakes are visible. He's saying, know this to be true. Saving faith. Immature, mature creation, that's irrelevant. There will be fruit, there will be evidence in your life. So what does this look like? Here's where James goes for the heart. And it's going to sting. He makes it personal. He makes it about family. Uh-oh. James is going to be talking about your family. And I'm not talking about your weird uncle or sibling that makes those inappropriate jokes at Thanksgiving. James is going to talk about the family of God. He begins, he begins with a common familial association calling us brothers and sisters. Paul does this, actually. John does this. Peter does this. Jesus does this. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. You are brother to sister, brother and sister, to Christ and to each other. So that's why this is going to get really, really, really personal. We're talking about family. James's next point in this passage is, those who dismiss poverty-stricken fellow believers are displaying a dead faith. They're displaying that faith. The one without value, the one without evidence. Let's take this one step further because I don't want anyone to leave here this morning without any doubt as to what James is saying here, what the implications are here, okay? James is saying if you dismiss in your heart the needs of your fellow heirs in Christ, you are not saved. That's some heavy stuff here. But how else can we read that? This sounds harsh, but, but James is making it very clear here that the value of that faith is meaningless. So if that faith is meaningless, it's not going to save. Let's read verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, we need to break this down a little bit. This needs a little bit of description. 
When he talks about need, he's not talking about, I need a new car. He's not talking about, I need a new cell phone. He's not talking about, I need necessarily, I don't need a new apartment. He's talking about dire needs. That's what he's describing here. This brother or sister in Christ does not have adequate protection from the elements. He is cold and will experience significant harm and possibly even death from this exposure. This brother or sister is lacking in daily food. This brother or sister is going to go hungry today. Most likely his or her family as well. These are dire needs, not desired comforts. So let's make sure we understand the need. So let's go to the response. The phrase, go in peace, be warmed and fulfilled, uses language common for a benediction, like, like a prayer. But can you imagine saying this to someone who is cold and starving? The phrase has a middle and passive voice translation in Greek. The middle voice says, warm and feed yourself, insinuating that these dire conditions and needs are within the control of the brother or sister in need, basically saying, go save yourself. The passive voice says, stay warm and well-fed, which is quite insulting when you see somebody shivering in the cold, who see, when you see somebody wasting away from lack of nutrition. Now, I don't want to diminish the power and necessity of prayer. Please do not hear that. But this phrase is akin to saying to this cold, starving brother, I'll pray for your needs to be met. As you turn and walk away in your warm jacket and your belly full of food. So James asks, what good is that faith? Again, what is that faith? It's a hollow faith. It's an empty faith. It's a dead faith. The faith which tells a fellow brother in Christ, no, I'm not going to help you because you can help yourself. Or says, I'm not going to help you because you don't need help. This faith is trash and cannot save you. James is making that abundantly clear. 1 John says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 17. John says, if anyone has the world's goods, that doesn't mean all the world's goods. He's not talking to rich people here. Anyone who has all of their needs fulfilled and sees his brother in need, there we have that brother term again. It's important, we'll get to that. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, it doesn't. If you can meet the need, and maybe it's just today's need, yet you dismiss your brother with the same glib prayer as James's example, how does God's love abide in you? And let's be real for a moment. You closed your heart because of what? Partiality. That's what Nick has been preaching on for the last two Sundays. That's what the first part of James chapter 2 is all about, showing partiality. You closed your heart to this believer because of how he or she appeared. You judged this person. You said something in your head and in your heart when you saw this person in need. 
You said something like, get a job, you lazy bum. Or make better life choices. Or God forbid, you think in your heart, you got what you deserve. In that moment, you failed to show, you failed to display the love of Christ you claim to have because it didn't move you to act. This is what James is saying. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We are called to meet the needs of our fellow Christians. That's why these passages, why, why these scriptures specifically use the words brother and sister. It's talking about, it's talking about us right now. And Jesus makes this point abundantly clear in Matthew 25. At the final judgment to the righteous, Christ will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous are going to be astonished and they're going to ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked and thirsty and lonely and sick? And the king will respond, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, who? My brothers. You did it to me. He's not pointing at the goats, okay? This, this final judgment scene, there has been a separation between the goats and the sheep. The goats are destined for hell. They belong to the kingdom of Satan. The sheep have been removed. He's talking to the sheep. Sorry, goats. He's talking to the sheep over here. And he's saying, you did this to me when you loved, when you cared for each other. Not talking about goats in this passage. Okay? He calls them my brothers, as you did to the least of these, meaning what you did for them, you did for me. Why? Because we are one body. We are the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one church in Christ. We are his bride. We are one in and through Christ if we have the Holy Spirit, if we belong to him, if our faith is genuine, true, saving faith. Because the works you did were not just through Christ, as we read about in Philippians, but they were also for him, for his pleasure, for his glory, as a testament to the world. Acts of mercy are not means of salvation, but they are necessary evidence of salvation. If your faith is saving faith, if it's true and genuine, then this faith will season your heart so that it pours out in your behavior, in your choices. And scripture is very clear. It starts with family. This is where we practice it, within the family of God. The kingdom becomes visible when we care for each other. Notice how Jesus commands the righteous. He commends the righteous because they showed love to whom? to the other sheep, to the believers. We are certainly called to do good 
to the goats as well. Okay, Scripture says that very clearly. But this is where we start. This is where we practice. Because if, if we can't love the family of God, and we can't love them well, we, we can't love the world outside and show them Christ's love. Just, just straight up. If you are not exercising love within the family of God, if you are not actively exercising and practicing that in this context, whatever you're doing out there, even if it's good works, it's meaningless. If you can't love within the family of God. That's what James is getting at here. If you can't love someone with the same Holy Spirit in them as you have, you cannot breathe life, bring life, show life to a dead spirit of the world outside. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, little sidebar here, as we have opportunity, not as we have time, not as we have money, not as we have a convenient place in our busy schedule, as we have opportunity, as we are prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to provide, to reveal opportunity, not provide, he provides plenty, trust me, to reveal for our eyes to be opened to the opportunity. As we are praying for that, in due season you will reap. Let us do good to everyone, comma, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, if we are not loving in here, we're not going to do it well out there. We can't. God has always desired his people to operate this way. Next year, we're going to go through a series on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it's going to be amazing. And we're going to hit on a whole bunch of different subjects. But one of the subjects is how Israel was blessed with laws and a culture and a society commanded by God that forbade anyone from going hungry. It did not happen. There were laws in place that guaranteed those in need would be fed. Even if it was just for a day, they would be fed. They made certain people had daily bread, had basic needs through the generosity and the care of the community. Even the sojourner, the traveler who would come to Israel was taken care of when he arrived if he had need. The nations around Israel knew there was something different with these people because they had no hungry people because of how they operated as a family, as a unit. We are called to do likewise. But instead of the law of Moses, we have the royal law, the law of liberty that Nick has been preaching about, bought and paid for with the blood of Christ, given to us as a free gift of righteousness and the Holy Spirit within us, breaking life into dead, breathing life into dead souls. The way in which we care for each other, the way we help meet the needs of each other, displays the kingdom to the secular world around us. And it's attractive. Imagine the Holy Spirit in you gets expressed as a candle. You go about your day. You go to work. You go to the grocery store. You even go and, and do some kind of a community service. And you're this one little candle. 
You're giving off light. You're giving off heat. But then you go and you gather with another believer. And there's two candles. Now there's more light. There's more heat. The way in which these two candles complement each other and build each other up becomes more evident. There's more light. There's just more. Now imagine this entire church meeting right now as candles. Brilliant light, blazing heat. Why? Because the fire within us is joining with the fire of other believers, and suddenly this heat and this light becomes a beacon, and everyone who walks by can see it, and they stop and they wonder, what is going on in there? I got to check that out. This is what happens when we have saving faith expressed in deeds and not just in words. It's how we love and care for each other, which provides evidence to the world around us. They will know you are Christians. Why? Because of our love. And that love starts here in the family. We are absolutely called to take that love out there as well. But James is, 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 is that coffee conversation moment. He's not talking to everyone. He's talking to you. If you are struggling to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you struggle with partiality, if you struggle with, with your heart, you need to stop and reflect and ask yourself some questions. This love can only come from a living, saving faith. This is what Charles, Charles Spurgeon said in, about Matthew 25. He said, The saints feed the hungry and clothe the naked because it gave them much pleasure to do so. They did it because they could not help doing it. Their new nature impelled them to do it. They did it because it was their delight to do good. They did good works for Christ because it was the sweetest thing in the world to do anything for Jesus. Why? Because saving faith involves a willful obedience to the king of the royal law. And this willful obedience is a transformation from life to death. Dead things don't move. Dead things don't produce fruit. They produce mushrooms, maybe. I, I don't know. There's no movement. They're decaying. They're gross. Living things hopefully are flourishing. Hopefully they're moving. Hopefully they're, they're, they're pleasant. Obedience without a transformation by love is legalism and just as dead as those who are declaring their faith with only their words alone. Obedience within the sustaining power and motivation of the Holy Spirit without the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit is not possible. So what is saving faith? James points to the negative here since, let's be honest, we're looking at the deceptions. We're looking at the, the, the things of this world, the lies that have been told to us about how we are to be saved. He's pointing out the deceptions. So he's going to point out the negatives here. So he's already made it clear that faith is not, is, is not living faith if there are no works. But he says, he makes it abundantly clear that, that faith is not just mere intellectual assent. In verse 19 he writes, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Now that term, that phrase there, God is one, every Jewish man or woman believed the, the Shema. That was called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6, 4. And it says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But James is saying, even the demons believe this, though. The demons believe a lot we believe, actually. It's kind of scary. They believe in the existence of God. It's kind of an obvious one. They also believe the deity of Christ. They, they believe the, present, the, the, the existence of heaven and hell. They know that Christ is the eternal judge. And they know Christ alone saves. Demons know this. But this is all just intellectual assent. This is the hearer of Matthew chapter 7 who knows the message, who hears the message, but his fall was still great because it was just intellectual. He knew things. Good for you, James says. If this is the sum total of your faith, congratulations. You have demon faith. But that's not all. James points out faith is not simply an emotional response either. How do the demons respond? They believe and they shudder. Even demons are affected by the truth of God and fear him. So if your faith is solely defined as a collection of emotional responses you've had regarding the truth about who God is and what he's done for us, guess what? What do you have? You have demon faith. Thanks, Jamie. Knowledge does not equal salvation. Even fear of the Lord does not equal salvation. Your mind and your heart aren't enough, which is why when the Pharisees tested Jesus about the greatest commandment, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Nothing was left out. You ever wonder what loving God with your soul looks like? How do you love the Lord with your soul? Well, this can only happen when the Holy Spirit brings your soul from death to life. And the evidence of this transformation will involve willful obedience to the royal law. Loving the Lord with all your soul means submitting your will or his. It's an exercise like working out, like we read about earlier. Submitting your will, your soul, your being, your personal identity, and submitting that to God. That's what it means. That's what it looks like to love the Lord your God with all your soul. It's more than just intellectual assent. It's more than just a feeling I get in my heart. It involves a willful obedience to the things that he commanded. It's not a manual. It's not a 12-step program to become a Christian. This passage, this holy epistle is, is a mirror asking us to take a real long, hard look at ourselves without deception. The Bible is not giving us suggestions about life. The Bible is describing what life in the kingdom looks like. The commands of Scripture are what the Spirit is accomplishing in our lives. James is saying, make sure that that evidence is there. Not to go look at your neighbor and say, I don't see that evidence in him. 
No, remember, this is, this is the, the, the coffee conversation. This is the one-on-one -on -one conversation. This is not giving us permission to look into each other's lives and say, I don't see evidence in that person. I don't think they're saved. That kind of judgment, ooh, that kind of judgment's going to get you in trouble. This is about looking at yourself. In that mirror, asking these questions. What happens if we ignore James' teaching? What happens if we don't help our brothers and sisters? What happens when we don't help the poor? What happens when we show partiality? James is very clear. We're dead. We are still spiritually dead. We aren't actually saved. James is slowing everything down just like he did in chapter 1. And he's saying, stop, reflect, examine yourself. That's, that's why we come here on Sundays. It's not for, for the great speaking, although if that's a reason, that's cool. It's not because we have flashy lights and, and fog machines. We don't have any of that. We come here to hear the word and have it challenge us and have it affect us and have it pierce our soul and our hearts and our minds so that we would ask ourselves these questions. Because James is saying, don't be deceived. I want the best for you. Christ wants the best for you. That includes doing some of the hard stuff, some of the hard looks at yourself. We are called to be kingdom citizens here in James. Right here, right now. We are called to exercise the love of Christ within the body of Christ as it flows from a saving faith in our Lord of glory. So if any part of this text makes you uncomfortable, please don't ignore it. That was James's point. If you're looking in that mirror and you see something that you don't like, don't put the mirror down. That would be foolish. Get closer to it and use scripture to remove the gunk in the way. That's what he's saying. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And we are called to do this upon reflection, just like James is calling us to do here. Reflect on your life. Reflect on how you are or are not exercising that saving faith around you. Reflect on how you view the poor around you. Here's a little, here's a little clue, guys. Here's a little clue. You might not know whether or not this poor person is a brother or sister in Christ. Think about that for a second. You might not know. If it's within this church building, we might have an idea because we have relationships here. But out in the world, if we see somebody in need, how are we going to know whether or not that's a brother or sister in Christ? We are called to love mercy and to be generous. And guess what? God Almighty will take care of those details for all of eternity. We're not called to do that. So I would ask you to take a moment and reflect and pray and use that mirror and use this text even if it makes you uncomfortable, especially if it's made you uncomfortable. It's made me uncomfortable. But don't walk away here without that reflection. Let's pray.
Our Father, we praise your name for the power of your word. Even when it makes us feel uncomfortable, even when it makes us, makes us squirm. Father, this wrestling is a good thing. Because you love us. Because you want us to be, to be purified and holy and draw closer to you. And so you have blessed us with your word to encourage us to reveal areas in our lives that still need to be exposed, that still need your Holy Spirit to work in us so that the Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, can work through us. So, Father, we thank you for your word. And I, and I lift up this body of believers right now. This body of believers really loves each other, and it's amazing to watch. So I pray right now, Father, that that would just increase the way that we care for each other the way that we minister to each other. Father, may that be the defining factor of this church, not, not the fancy music, not the, the fancy preaching. May it be the love that we share as a family be the thing that draws people. And may we take that love and may we, may we express it to the world around us, to the communities around us, to the jobs around us, to the schools around us. Father, we are helpless to do any good works apart from your spirit. So we ask your spirit to, to be in us, to join us, to reveal truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. I'm going to invite the men forward as we take communion.